You're listening to The Dealmaker's Edge with A.Y. Strauss, diving deep into stories behind commercial real estate leaders. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Dealmaker's Edge. I wanted to welcome David Valger, our guest today, who founded DVO Real Estate, who's responsible for overall management, operations, and investing activities of the firm. And he's got a ton of experience in all aspects of real estate investing and finance, including originating, structuring, underwriting, and managing the commercial real estate transaction volume in excess of $6 billion. And David, we're really, really thrilled you're here today. I know your story is great, and we intend to get it out of you today for our listeners. So thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Aaron. Thank you for uh, having me on. Of course. Um, What I'd love to do is just start off with some personal background, you know, beginning professional life before you sort of launched DVO? Sure. My family immigrated to the United States in 1980 from the former Soviet Union from uh, Moscow, Russia. I probably disappointed, no, I definitely disappointed my parents by not becoming a dentist or, or a doctor, although I did attend dental school at NYU for a year. And uh, that's, that's all I could handle from uh, dentistry. After college at Binghamton, um, I graduated with a double degree in art history and biology. It took a while to figure out exactly what I wanted to do because I realized that business was really my calling. I first um, started a uh, company with a few partners um, right before my dental school path because I took a leap year between um, college and, and dental school. And during that year, started a company. I wound up running the sales and marketing for the company. It was a multinational packaged goods um, marketing company. A great experience. Did business in the uh, Russia, the former Soviet Republic, CIS, um, Eastern Europe, Israel, uh, a little bit in Western Europe, and came to the conclusion that I needed more of an education to get to the next level in my business development. And so went back to business school having founded a technology company, realizing that, you know, uh, going back to school was the right thing for me to do. Got into the University of Pennsylvania at the Wharton School, received my MBA there during my uh, first year, made the commitment to myself that I really want to find myself in private equity at the end of my tenure at school. Um, Wound up getting a summer internship with a company called RCG Longview with uh, uh, three just brilliant uh, real estate professionals, uh, Michael Boxer uh, from Ramius, now RCG Longview and Center Square, John Estridge of Estridge and Company, and Jay Anderson of the File Organization. Unfortunately, we lost Jay last summer. Uh, just a brilliant uh, a real estate mind who taught me uh, a great deal about uh, professional life, a great deal about the real estate business, and a great deal about uh, just being um, a human being. So I, I focused on the structured debt business of the company. Within a year, partnered with Fannie Mae and ran a partnership which included RCG Longview becoming the exclusive provider of mezzanine and preferred equity behind Fannie Mae nationally for their multifamily business. Followed on a series of funds where Fannie Mae was our exclusive limited partner and we were the general partner ran a team within RCG Longview and a team within Fannie Mae to originate um, due diligence, underwrite, and uh, ultimately asset manage a portfolio of mezzanine and preferred equity investments. Uh, After the Great Recession, I came to the realization being in the subordinated or structured debt business for multifamily, at least, was a very poor risk-adjusted return because all the math in the world um, that you do up front 
and say my attachment point is this or that, it all comes down to if there's a substantial correction during your hold period, especially right before your refinance or exit, you're taking pretty much the same risk in mezzanine at an 80 to 85% attachment point in total capitalization that you are in equity. Uh, in the Great Recession, we had roughly a 30% on average peak to trough value correction in multifamily. So did it really matter whether your mezzanine loan was 73% or 93% attachment point? It did when you originated it, but it did not when you had to work it out. Because if you had a control appraisal at a certain time, that would show that you're underwater. And unless you were willing to cure the default of the senior loan, which could mean investing 10, 20 times your loan amount to keep the deal, usually it didn't, but it could. It meant that you lost your investment. So uh, when, when struggling with this binary risk and worse of all, two things. One, having a capped upside. So when things get go great, you don't participate in that upside as a mezzanine investor or a hard preferred equity investor. But if things go badly, there's a binary risk for you to lose all your money. To me, I found that to be a very poor outcome. So I tried to figure out a way where I could continue investing in multifamily, but doing so on a somewhat differentiated equity basis because multifamily is the single you know, largest commercial asset class. And therefore, a majority of institutional investors and other professional investors, fund to funds, life insurance companies, and family offices are heavily invested in the space. So if you're just doing what everybody else is doing, I don't really see the alpha. I didn't really understand, you know, what I'd have to do. I suppose the only way to be successful there is to be the largest. And I never was attracted to, to having the largest asset. I never was attracted to doing the biggest deal. Although fortunately or unfortunately in my career, I have participated in some of the larger financings uh, in private multifamily deals. Uh, I would prefer uh, always to, to participate in transactions with great partners that ultimately do the right thing by tenants and by our business plan. That's a really well articulated value prop for your current core business. Maybe you could talk about just the founding of DVO and you know the early days where you are now is a whole new level, but um, no one starts that way. And you know how you got started. Sorry, how you broke in with your own firm with that institutional experience. So if you ask me to put together a model of the business and say, well, here are the risks, here are the costs. Uh, and here's the payoff. If you truly wrote a business plan in a case and did right by the model itself as a business, forget the investment thesis, but the business, you would find very difficult to start because you could always ask, say to yourself, but I can make more money that year or this year being uh, a senior executive or a partner somewhere else for someone else or with someone else. And starting a business, I think the statistics is that in, in normal, ordinary economic times without volatility, something like 75 to 80% of all new startup businesses don't make it past year five. So when you layer all that in and you think in, in real estate private equity terms, what are the ways to start a business? Most people gravitate towards, I'm going to find a sugar daddy. I'm going to find a really wealthy family or um, some sort of asset manager or a big bank, some brand that can appreciate what I do Maybe I'll make less money, but 
they're going to pay a salary. I'm going to have a, a team of people that uh, I can capitalize. I can hire any lawyers I want. And a lot of the work that you know otherwise would be done by me or one other person would be done by a team of people. And I think that's wonderful. And I think people that do that um, probably are really much smarter than I. I started the business with the idea of I have lots of great relationships. Over a decade, I, I fostered you know quite a bit of direct relationships with sponsors, originators of the multifamily finance, and of course, a number of lenders. And I, I was thinking, look, if I can come up with a slightly tweaked model, a different mousetrap or a better mousetrap, uh, and I can differentiate myself, therefore, both to investors and local partners, that I could start a smaller business and I could self-fund it. It has been, I could say, nonlinear. Has it been successful? Yes. Um, you know, we've deployed over $2 billion in total capitalization, probably three to $400 million in equity. And I can tell you that on the LP side, we have two products. I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But our LP business set out to create a different kind of soft preferred equity variant, which we call gap equity, not giving up the upside, but also creating some subordination with more equity from the local partner, but otherwise being an equity, a partner as opposed to a lender. And then we also have a GP co-investment business. In the LP business, the majority of our equity that we've invested, our goal was to generate on average a 15 net investor IRR over the last decade for investors. There were deals that were targeted to generate 12 and a half. There were deals targeted to generate 17, but on average 15%. We've thus far generated over a 21 over that period of time where we basically are investing preferred equity position but at the same time, we're making returns that are very much JV or opportunistic fund level on an institutional basis. You know, we compare from a returns perspective with the highest risk takers in our industry, but we're taking a whole lot less risk. Would you say that you sort of your business almost lives between the traditional big institutions and the traditional syndicator? You sort of bridge all that risk in the market from your umbrella, but still give access to that sort of real middle market product? Yes. But more specifically, what we do is we bring an institutional approach to entrepreneurial companies. So our sponsors oftentimes are entrepreneurs who are not quite at the institutional level uh, and we help uh, get them there. Or they're already institutional, but for some reason, they realize that they have a real winner on their hands, a triple or home run deal, and they're hard pressed to find a uh, competing structure that gives them the kind of returns that we can give them if they succeed without forcing them to take additional leverage risk in, in a more conventional preferred equity or mezzanine structure. So it's purposely differentiated both to investor and to local partner uh, on the gap equity side. And I think we can call ourselves smart all we want, but the real reasons for why we outperformed is because we incentivize the right kind of behavior on the part of our local partner it's because we underwrote more conservatively than the rest of the market. We said cap rates were going to expand. They did, really didn't. We said the cost of financing is going to go up. It really did not. We said that the average rents in the marketplace are not going up beyond 2.5-3% a year, and they did. So uh, you layer that into the fact that when we saw opportunities to exit, and it doesn't, didn't necessarily jive 100% with our original underwriting, we typically underwrite to somewhere between three and five years of hold. So on average, 48 months. And if by month 40, 
we see that we can get the kind of sale price that we originally underwrote, we'll take it all day long. So yeah, it's it's a unique structure borrowing from a little bit of debt in terms of the subordination of the local partner and the additional capital they have to put in. So on average, they're putting in 20% of the total equity versus R80, rather than the typical 95.5 or 90.10 institutional uh, JV kind of uh, equity contribution. And at a liquidity event, you know, until we get our money back and a 10% compounded return, said in other ways, a 10x IRR, their entire equity position is subordinated to us. So that's that's the gap equity business in a nutshell. We've also developed GP co-investment, not wanting to compromise the uniqueness of the structure. We wanted to do more with the same sponsors. And so we said, what kind of equity do you need? And everyone, of course, always says JV equity. I said, okay, but everyone does JV equity. What other kinds of equity do you require and you know to grow your business? And eventually they come clean and they say, well, we could use to GP co-investment capital because ultimately we need 10 to 20 million of fresh cash every year. And while we're getting you know better on our uh, personal financial statements, right? As real estate people well know, liquidity is rare, uh, but your net worth hopefully grows. And so their net worth is growing, but they need to find fresh liquidity every time they do a deal. And so uh, we try to uh, work with good groups that are experienced, but need capital to continue their growth. And it's great. You have both sides of the business covered and you found a way to get upside, diversify with a lot of great local sponsors. And it's a win-win for your investors, but also for those wonderful sponsors you team up with who really need your expertise and the capital and the structuring experience you bring to the table. So it's, it's a wonderful story that you've brought a long way. I mean, you've done so much. Maybe let's move a little bit more into the market generally. Um, you've been in multifamily for a long time. You've seen a tremendous deal flow. You're, you're doing a tremendous amount of deal flow. Um, and we've talked about this in the past, but, but maybe we can talk about sort of macro and micro. Um, markets move fast. You bump into straights. Everyone's you know, running to multifamily. It's all about the story has been about rent growth and rent growth and how much more and uh, hedge against inflation, all the common themes. But I know that you're uh, very thoughtful on these topics. And maybe you could sort of give us an overview, uh, just a couple minutes on sort of the macro market. Does it have room to run? What makes you nervous? What makes you lose sleep at night? Um, and what excites you these days? So you say that I'm long in the business. I, I felt like I needed a mirror to comb my hair, but oh, last, I don't have any more. Um, look, I think what keeps me up at night is um, something we, I was too young really to appreciate the last time it happened. Uh, and that's stagflation, a combination of a stagnating economy with uh, unbridled inflationary pressure across the board. Uh, I think that is one risk that could ap- absolutely impact multifamily values in a way that few others can. Uh, the reason that multifamily is otherwise very well protected is because, one, um, we have a consistent source of liquidity for the financing of our business, the agencies, right? Um, Fannie, Freddie, and FHA are there to make sure that if the capital markets somehow can't find a home, these organizations come in uh, instead of their average 50 to 60% of the total financing that they take on up, you know, upwards of 80 to 90% when push comes to shove. Now, what's not guaranteed are spreads and total uh, cost of borrowing, but 
I can say to you, having witnessed two and a half, probably, if not three cycles, that there is a path forward for good sponsors and owners of multifamily who are willing to put capital into their back into their deals when the world stops because of the agencies. And that's a big dis- distinguishing feature. Uh, other asset classes in commercial real estate simply don't have that. The second reason that I think multifamily is very unique is because you have a consistency of cash flows. Having a roof over your and your family's head is secondary only to putting food on the table, uh, or even if you don't have a table, uh, feeding your family. And so, um, having you know having that priority helps, especially if you're not investing in fringe assets in multifamily. By fringe, I mean and the C minus D's of the world and the A's of the world. If you're investing in, in middle market B, um, it stays occupied during a uh, tough economic period because the A's and the single family home evacuees uh, move in um, and it stays busy when the economy is doing robustly because your, your C's move up and your sort of B's move up to B plus and your B pluses move into A and, and single family homes. The reason why I think the forecast for multifamily is rather strong is fundamentals. Uh, we are currently somewhere in the 770 to 790,000 units of shortfall in terms of how many multifamily units we need to be in balance in terms of supply and demand in our business nationally. And by the end of this year, our expectation along with that of many economists is that we're going to have a high 800,000 number of shortfall. In other words, based on the number of units that we're going to lose as a result of just the fact that they can't be occupied anymore, right? Age, uh, dilapidation, whatever the reason, and the number of homes we're going to create versus the number that will be in demand, we're going to grow that 780, 790 shortfall to somewhere in the high 800s. And that tells me that as long as you're investing in markets that have a understandable growth trajectory based on new household formations, based on demographics, based on employment and wage growth, based on the fact that there are uh, high barriers to entry, and those markets also have a diversified employer base, then investing in three to five-year cycles in those markets either to renovate and improve cash flows or to ground and develop um, sounds like a very promising investment. The next caveat, as I said, stagflation is the worst. The second worst is unbridled inflation, even if the economy is doing well. The risks are amplified by the Fed stepping in and uh, making not just grandiose statements about how they're going to raise rates, but actually raising rates too quickly and creating. Uh, our very own recession as a consequence to the attempt to try to slow down economic expansion and inflation. So I'm not fearful of inflation uh, per se in multifamily, but I am fearful of the decoupling of the economy's growth and inflation and causing stagflation. Does that make some sense? It does. And I think we have to wrap um, in a minute or two, but maybe you could just end off with how you keep your mental edge daily. Um, with all the stress you're managing and all the deal flow you're managing, how do you keep your head in the game constantly with everything you're seeing? 
a lot of yelling and cursing. <laughs> Beyond that, any other techniques our listeners can apply? Uh, uh, you know, in, in uh, race car driving, they tell you when you turn, you make turns, don't look just to the end of this turn. Look beyond it. Because if you look to the end of your turn, you're going to wind up off the road. But if you look beyond that, um, you're going to wind up eventually where you need to be. And so I try to look past the immediacy of you know the disaster and try to figure out how to get through that turn um, and take advantage of the next turn or the next straightaway. I, I really appreciate the time today. I'm sure our listeners are going to learn a ton. And I know they can find you by looking at looking up your company, DVO Real Estate, and um, maybe some people listening will want to ping you directly, which would be great. And hopefully we can have a follow-up because you have so much going on and there's a lot to cover, but you've been an amazing guest. And I really, really want to thank you again for your time today. Thank you. We've had the pleasure of knowing one another for uh, a good bit of time. And um, I look forward to our next uh, physical session as well as our next uh, uh, meeting uh, virtually. Thank you for joining the Dealmaker's Edge. Don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Give us a five-star rating so more people can follow the conversation.